bladder cancer. I mean, they just discovered this in March, and, you know, it was, it was very aggressive, and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it was stage four, I believe, when they found it. But um, Shelly was a, a really special person, very godly, one of those people who every time you saw her, you felt genuine love in her presence. You felt like she really cared about you. And, and uh, her life was, was really a, a powerful testimony of God's goodness and what he does in somebody's life when they yield to him. But what, what I noticed that day as we walked into this, this funeral was that this was different than other funerals I've been to. And I've been to, to you know, a handful of funerals, probably a little more than that, but not a bunch. Um, and what was so different about this one when we walked in is that the, the, the first song that we sang today, How Great Thou Art, they were singing that, that when, we, when we got there, like kind of right as it was, it was starting. And uh, they had already begun that song, and people were worshiping like they were at church. Like it wasn't like people were somber and, and kind of looking at each other and not really singing. People were singing, and, and their hearts were worshiping. In the midst of loss, in the midst of sorrow, while grieving, people were able to praise God and able to worship. And you could sense that, that it wasn't that everything was fine. It wasn't as if there wasn't deep pain, but that something was making it possible to still worship in spite of the pain. And what I, what I really took away um, that day as I, as I experienced worship in such a, a dark moment is that I think there's something that makes a big difference when we grieve, and it's whether or not we can experience true comfort, real comfort. I think the reason why people were able to worship that day is because they were experiencing real comfort from the Lord. And I think that as a collective body, people had been comforting one another. I think the family had been surrounded by the church and, and been able to experience the arms and the heart of God in a, in a tangible way. And that is why when we walked in, it was a loud chorus of people singing because comfort was mixed in with their grief. So death and grieving are a part of life. There's, there's no denying that. We all grieve at one time or another, but not everyone grieves in the same way. Some people, when they grieve, are driven to despair. and they, I mean, it, it's like the, the sorrows are so heavy that they feel like they can't go on. But others don't get driven to this place of despair. They're able to keep going, and they're able to, to, to keep moving in spite of the fact that their world feels like it's coming down. They're able to stand because they've exper- they're experiencing real comfort in the midst of their pain. So comfort, real comfort in the midst of our grieving makes all the difference. But the question I want to talk about today is how do we experience real comfort when we grieve? How do we find Comfort that is not just empty, nice words or something like that, but real comfort when we're in the midst of sorrows, when we're in the midst of grieving. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which I believe 
addresses that question. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you need one, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you there. And let me orient us to this this part of of Paul's epistle to the church at Thessalonica. In chapter four, uh, chapters four and five, he begins explaining that Christ's coming, his his return, that is imminent, is motivation for holiness. He's talking about how the fact that Christ is coming back is motivation for holiness, and then. In verses 1 through 12 of this passage, he gives some instruction regarding relationships with one another. And then in verses 13 through 18, the passage we're going to look at today, Paul actually teaches about what is going to happen when Christ comes back. What are the events that unfold? And then he gives an application from that. And so as we look at this passage today, I believe that we'll find out the answer to how we can find comfort when we grieve. And also how we can comfort others when they grieve. It's not only how we can experience comfort for ourselves, but how we can also provide that and give it to others as we receive it. So I want to pray over our time together, and then we'll stand as we read the passage. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to to gather today. Um, We thank you that we're able to, to be here and sing to you in freedom, that we're able to, to be here and hear your word proclaimed. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have that same freedom. We pray for, for your presence to be with them, to comfort them in the midst of the challenges that they face. Will you... Remind us often of the persecuted church and help us not to forget these brothers and sisters around the world. But Lord, we also ask today as we open your word and as we look into it that you would have your way with our time together, that you would use this time to to be with us in a very special way by your spirit. We pray that you would speak truth to our hearts, that you would give us Uh, insight into what is true Um, in light of your word. I pray that this would inform uh, the way that we think, the way what we believe, but also in turn the way that we live. I pray that you would help us to be people who grieve, but also experience comfort when we grieve. Show us what that looks like, because we need that. Whether Sorrows are on our doorstep or down the road. They surely will come. And what we believe in that moment will impact how we respond. And so we pray that you would help us, that you would use this text to encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and read this together. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, you can take a seat. So Paul begins this passage in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So evidently what was going on in this church is that they, had experience, they were experiencing some, some extreme sorrow over the death of some of their brothers and sisters in Christ, that is what those who are asleep, sleep is, is a, a figure of speech for death, refers to. And then, according to Paul here, the problem was that they were uninformed or ignorant about what was true for their Christian friends who had passed away, what their destiny was to be. And so, while the Thessalonians believed in the resurrection, that was very common I mean, they're, they're, everyone who had responded to the gospel, Paul and all the other apostles, the resurrection was included in their gospel message. So it's not that they didn't know about the resurrection. It's that they were worried, as you'll see, we'll, we'll go through this as the text, um, uh, as we walk through it, but they were, it seems to be, worried that some of their, these friends that had died were going to only be resurrected after Christ returned that they were going to miss out on this glorious appearance of Christ when he came back to the earth. And so they were, they were sad over the fact that not only were their friends gone, but that they also were going to miss out on this great, great occasion. And so this ignorance that they had, this lack of knowledge, was leading them to grieve, basically like their pagan neighbors, people who didn't know the Lord. And that's why Paul says, as others do who have no hope. Is that it's not so much that the grieving was the problem, is that they were doing it in a way where they didn't have hope because they didn't know what was true. And so he comes to tell them what is true so that they will have hope and then they can grieve in light of that. And so what we see from the get-go in here, in this passage, is that grieving without hope is rooted in a lack of knowledge of the truth of the gospel. Grieving without hope is rooted in a lack of knowledge of the truth of the gospel. When people don't know who God is, when they don't know what he's done for us in Christ and what he has promised to do in the future, the fact that he's promised to raise us, they are vulnerable to fear and anxiety, which is absolutely normal. If you don't know what's on the other side of the door of death, of course you're going to be afraid and of course you're going to be worried and you're going to be grieving without hope. But we do have hope because we do know what is coming. And Paul, in the rest of this passage, unpacks that in detail for the Thessalonians so they understand exactly what will happen. So he, he moves on in verse 14. He says this, kind of a summary statement, really. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I think that there's three points that Paul makes in this little passage that I want to walk through quickly so that we can get to the rest of this passage. First of all, 
Jesus' death and resurrection are proof that God can raise the dead, right? What he has done in Christ shows that God has the power to raise from the dead. But then in this verse, it says, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So not only is Christ's death and resurrection proof that God can raise the dead, it's also a promise that God will raise the dead. It's a type, it's, it's, a, it's a figure, it's, it's, it's showing us what has been true for Jesus is true for those who have, their faith, have placed their faith in him. Though Christ died, though he was buried, he was raised, and though we will die and we will be buried unless he comes first, he will raise us from the dead. So it's the proof that God can raise the dead. It's also a promise that he will raise the dead. But notice that he says that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is where Paul begins to address very explicitly what I believe is the problem that this church was facing. He's saying that he will raise their dead friends, their dead church members, to life before he comes. They will be coming with him. So they're not going to miss out on this glorious appearance of the coming of Christ. And so they have nothing to fear. They have nothing to worry about. Those who they are mourning will not miss out on anything. But what happens when Christ returns? This is where he kind of walks through the sequence of, of, of what happens. In verse 15, he says this. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So this, he, he starts off saying, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And so Paul's point here is, this isn't just my teaching, this isn't just something that I've come up with, this is something that comes from Christ. And while if you go and look in the Gospels, you will not see Jesus explicitly say all the same thing that Paul says in these verses, it does line up with Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24. If you look at at that passage, his Olivet Discourse, you'll see that these things, it provides more information to what Jesus is, is teaching on in Matthew 24. And so what most likely is the case is that Paul is referring to some unrecorded teachings of Christ, something that he had access to, um, that the apostles had access to that we just don't see in our Gospels. But it's in line with what Jesus teaches in Matthew 24. And then Paul goes on to say, he says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So you see, he's very, very clear on this idea that it's not, we, we do not go and, and join up with Christ before he raises the dead to life. They're going to be raised before we join him. And then in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Important things for us to to note here is that Jesus is coming back personally and bodily. You know, when, when you look at the gospels, when Christ rose from the dead and then appeared to the disciples before he ascended into heaven, he did so bodily. Thomas touched the scars in his hands. He fixed breakfast and ate breakfast with the disciples on the, on the shore 
of, of whatever sea that was. My mind's blanking me right now. Probably the Sea of Galilee. And so we see that Christ rose bodily, not just some figment of, of their imagination, not just in some spirit form, but he rose bodily, he ascended bodily, he sits at the Father's right hand right now bodily, and he's coming back bodily. And then when he comes, he comes with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So this cry of command is like a victory shout. The archangel joins in this, this cry, and then the trumpet blasts. But what's with the trumpet? That's why we read the Old Testament reading that we did earlier. Throughout the scriptures, the trumpet was used as a, as, as a battle cry. Think of when, when Joshua and, and his folks marched around Jericho. They blew the trumpet, and that was a battle cry. It was also a battle cry for, for other um, battles. But it also did something else. The trumpet of God also often signaled the coming of God. When there were these theophanies in the Old Testament, these appearances of God, there was often a trumpet sound. And in Exodus, was it 19, I believe? Not, not 18, I think I have 18 here. But in Exodus, the, the, the passage that we read earlier, it says, on the morning of the third day, yeah, this is 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. How beautiful is that, that in the Old Testament we see the trumpet is blast, and then God comes to meet with his people. And then when Christ comes back, the trumpet is blast, and Christ comes to meet with his people. We see what God has done in the past is, is, is being repeated in the future. So there's significance in that. But what is the outcome of all of this commotion, this cry of shout of command and this trumpet blast? 16 says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this cry, this angel's voice, this trumpet blast is like a call to the dead in Christ to come out of their graves and they obey that call. They rise. And this happens before those who are alive, whenever Christ is here, join up with Christ. Paul's very, very explicit on that key timing piece of this information. But then in verse 17, he continues. He says, Then we are alive who are left, referring to to anybody who is a living believer at that time, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is the famous rapture verse. The word rapture isn't there, but it's the, the idea of be caught up together with them in the clouds. So after God raises the dead in Christ, then we join them, those who are still alive. And then we all receive our imperishable glorified bodies. And that is not in this text, but the, the New Testament reading that David read for us in 1 Corinthians tells us that because it has the, the same trumpet language and then in verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 52 and 53, it says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So when this trumpet is raised, 
not only are the dead raised from their graves, but they are then given their immortal, imperishable, glorified bodies that will never decay, will never rot, will never die. And we, even though we're not dead, if we're still alive when Christ comes, those who are alive, there are, their bodies are changed. Bo- they receive their imperishable, immortal bodies, glorified bodies. And this is important stuff for us to know. It's cause for comfort, it's cause for worship, and it's our grounds for grieving with hope, knowing that even though we will experience death and we will experience the temporary separation from loved ones, from friends, from family members that die, that's not the end of the story. Christ is coming back and he will raise them to life If we die, he will raise us to life, and we will be brought back together with God and with all of the saints. And as it says in in the end of verse 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. The result of all of this is that now we have glorified bodies. We're able to be in the presence of God himself because we are completely rid of the presence of sin, and we will be living in unbroken unhindered fellowship with our Creator forever and with all the company of the saints. How good is that news? We can find comfort when we grieve if we will believe these truths of the gospel. This truth that we see in this passage is the grounds by which we can have hope in the midst of death, in the midst of suffering. And just to be very clear, what does Paul say? I think there are four distinct points in this passage. The gospel here that we see is that, first of all, Jesus died and rose from the dead, so we worship a living, resurrected Savior. He is alive. He is at the Father's right hand right now. Secondly, God will raise the dead to life. Third, Jesus will return to the earth. And finally, we will be with Jesus forever. We will be with our God forever. And this wonderful news is the foundation. It is the only thing that you can stand on and experience comfort and experience hope when grief, when death, and sorrow knock on your door. It's the only place that is sure. It is the only place that is strong enough. But I believe if we're going to find comfort when we grieve, it starts with believing the truth of the gospel but I think it moves to a second thing, and that's what I want to talk about next. Notice Paul in this passage in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve. And he doesn't stop right there. He continues, As others do who have no hope. So I want to, I want to be very clear on something. Grieving is not a bad thing. We are not told to not grieve. Actually, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that God very much values and honors grieving. Actually, as a culture, we really don't do this well. Most of us don't really know how to do it and don't take the time to do it. We just kind of try to move on as if nothing's happened. So grieving is not a bad thing. In fact, it's very normal and it's necessary. And here's one way that we know that grieving is a good thing. Jesus himself grieved. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. 
and he also raised him from the dead. But before that, he wept. He grieved. And he grieved with Mary, with Martha, with his close friends as they were grieving in their moment of pain. And so I don't want anybody to walk away from this today getting the idea that Paul is telling us not to grieve. You know, sometimes you get this stupid, silly idea, you know, like, smile, God loves you. It's never okay to frown, and it's never okay to be sad. Like, that's not true. The truth of the gospel gives us hope, and it gives us comfort when we grieve, but it doesn't change the fact that we're sad and that we hurt. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to be sad. It's actually good, and it's actually healthy for us to to appropriately experience that and deal with that. It's not that we grieve. It's not, it's not that we shouldn't grieve. It's that we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. And so the gospel is the grounds of our comfort. But I believe that if we're going to experience comfort when we grieve, we experience that as we draw near to God himself because he is the one who provides comfort. The gospel gives the grounds for it, but he is the one who actually gives it. And if we want to find comfort when we grieve, we have to be honest with our feelings and bring those to the Lord and lay those at his feet and experience his presence in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our pain. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, But my guess is that in a room this large, there are some of us who are grieving at this very moment. Maybe you've experienced death in the last few weeks or months. Or maybe you have a family member right now who death is knocking at their door. Regardless of what our individual circumstances are, We all face pain, and we all deal with sorrow. It's just a fact of life. And the hope of the gospel is that Jesus reigns over all things, and that he is stronger, and he has defeated death. He has conquered the grave. And though we are waiting his return, he is with us now, right? He says, lo, I am with you always by the form of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes back, he's going to put an end of all the mess, all the pain, and we will be with him forever. No more tears. No more sickness. But as I said before, unbroken fellowship. Unhindered, complete intimacy. Being known and knowing God without anything getting in the way. No fear no shame, no guilt. I mean, think about that. How amazing will it be to be in a place where you completely are yourself and you're known that way? There's nothing, no part of you that feels like people don't get this or, man, I can't talk about that. You're completely known and there's no shame, no guilt. That provides comfort to us. That provides hope for us but we experience it as we grieve and as we bring what's going on in our hearts to the Lord and we trust him with it. We experience it to the extent that we allow the Lord to be with us in it. And so the point is that if we pretend like we're okay, we're robbing ourselves of the comfort that God wants to give us. You can't be comforted of something that you don't think you need comfort for, right? 
So part of this, this finding comfort aspect is actually acknowledging that we need it and, and turning to the Lord and asking God to give it, give it to us, believing that he wants to and that he can and that he will. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word encourage could also be translated comfort. It's actually, you know, you could go either way, kind of six and one, half dozen and other kind of thing. And so Paul, as a conclusion to everything he said, a conclusion of what is coming when Christ returns, says, comfort one another with these words. The proper response to knowing this is encouraging and comforting each other with these truths. And so his point is you have to constantly be pointing one another back to the truth and hope of the gospel. Why? Because we are so prone to forget this. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, when you're hurting and when you're afraid and when you're anxious, the loudest thing are the voices in your head, not the truth of God's word. And it's so hard sometimes to tell yourself and to, you know, to, to get to a place where what is declared by God in his holy, authoritative scripture is right and what you're feeling is not always right. And so it's a communal effort. We're so prone to forget. We're so prone to trust our emotions. And we're so prone to run to all these different things. And so what Paul knows is that we need one another to remind us of what is true, to point us back to God, to point us back to the gospel. And that is our privilege and our calling as the church is to do that for one another. Is to be the kind of people who graciously, and that's key, don't want to beat anybody, especially when they're grieving, but to graciously and tenderly, when the timing is right, speak truth to people. And, and, and truth is what is ultimately true, what we just talked about, the gospel, what is true of us because of what Christ has done, what is true for the future because of what Christ has done. We can comfort one another when we comfort one another with the truth and hope of the gospel. So we find comfort in the truth of the gospel, we grieve with the hope of the gospel, and we can comfort one another with the truth and the hope of the gospel. You know, a couple weeks ago, I believe it was, I just want to hit this again because if you're like me, you probably struggle with this. Um, I talked about how there is a tendency for us to try to speak too much whenever we're, we're trying to love people and grieve with people and how, you know, we would do a lot better to just listen and let our presence be our love instead of our words. I don't think that that means that we can't do what Paul is saying here. I think that we do have an, a, a privilege, an opportunity, and a calling to remind one another of truth. But like I hinted out just a moment ago, I just want to encourage us. Remember that timing is really key. And also, what also, another thing that's really key is the context of the relationship that you have with the person. 
The amount of words that leave your mouth in the presence of somebody who's in pain should be directly related to the previous history you have with them. If you don't know that person well, a a, a simple, I'm sorry you're going through this, we love you, is enough. If you know them well, yeah, maybe you can kind of a little deeper. But I just want to say, our culture, maybe I'm reading this through the lens of my personality, we just are so prone to try to be you know, oh, we got to get this person cheered up, and so we just start kind of verbally vomiting on them. So let's just remember that while we are called to do this, there's a time, and it's probably not the day after they receive the bad news. It's probably later, and it's probably within the context of a relationship where you know this person, and you know their heart, and you know at least somewhat of, of where they're at so that you're just not walking in carelessly. And, and you know, a lot of it's good intention, but we just have to be careful. You know, I want to close just by, by saying again, death is a part of life. There's no getting around that. We will face the sorrow that it brings as we live on this earth. But what God has done in Christ is a pattern, and it is a, it's, it's proof, it's a pattern, and it's a promise of what he will do for us. And so the grave is not the end of the story. Jesus died, God raised him back to life, and he will raise us to life. We will be with Christ forever. Our story ends in the clouds. It ends with our Lord. It ends with all the saints of every generation. And as weird as it is for our minds to think about, there will be no end to that. It's infinite. So let's interpret what we experience now on the earth. Let's remind ourselves that though there is pain, though there is sorrow, though death brings those things, it is not the end. It's the middle of a very, very, very long story that has much more to come. And let's let that be grounds for our our hope but let's let that drive us to the feet of our Savior so that we can experience comfort when we grieve. And as we do, we can then extend that to one another. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful that in the midst of our pain and our suffering, you are with us because of who Jesus is and what he has done. We're so grateful that you chose to save us though we rebelled and though we completely turned our back on you in hatred. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you have reconciled us to yourselves. And we thank you that you have chosen to give us eternal life and that the grave is not the end of the story for us. We thank you that we have the promise of spending eternity with you, with all the saints, that our relationships with one another those of us who are believers in Christ, truly will have no end. Thank you for that beautiful, beautiful truth. I pray that you would 
Use this truth to help us to understand how good you are so that when we experience grief, when we experience sorrow, we run to you with our pain, we trust you with it, and we experience the comfort that only you can give. And then I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take that comfort and give it to others as they face their own grief and their own sorrows. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be together in the church. We thank you that you have given us the gift of brothers and sisters to walk with, to carry us whenever we are weak, to remind us of what is ultimately true so that we can stand in the midst of dark, dark days. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for what he's done. Thank you that he is coming back. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we sing this final...